Um, so, as I, as I said, this, um, this is the seventh Andrew Chamberlain Memorial Lecture. The, um, the first six lectures have been given respectively by Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, Paul Davis, Michelle Mayor, Brian Green and Jim Al-Khalili. And we're very pleased that Professor Frank Close has agreed to give the seventh lecture. And before I introduce Professor Close, I'd just like to say a few words about Andrew Chamberlain, in whose memory this lecture series has been established. So, um, Andrew was born in Texas, and um, he came um, to the UK. He, he went to Rice University, and then he came to the UK in 90, the early 90s, first to Oxford, where he studied with Roger Penrose, and then to Cambridge, where he studied with Gary Gibbons and Stephen Hawking. After he completed his PhD in Cambridge in, um, in our department, he, he became a, a research fellow at Pembroke, and he had various other fellowships. Um, across the world before he um, went to University of Louisville in Kentucky as an assistant professor and then he sadly died in Louisville in, um, um, in, on the 6th of February 2006 when he was only 36. So a Andrew made a number of striking contributions to research over, his, over the, the years in relativity and quantum gravity and M-theory and he delivered many talks and lectures around the world. And after his death, his many friends and collaborators in Dampton elsewhere established a fund to, um, to support a series of lectures that would perpetuate his memory and also promote the broad, more broad area of science in which he was interested. And um, this, 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 this fundraising was sufficiently successful that we can have a, you know, an Andrew Chamberlain Memorial Lecture in perpetuity. And we in Dampton are very pleased to have the responsibility to, of organizing that and it's now become one of our important annual lectures. Um, and so it's a pleasure to welcome any, any friends um, and, and supporters of the Andrew Chamberlain Fund here today. Um, Andrew, Andrew's parents have often attended this lecture. They can't be here today, but they gave Damped this striking bust of him, which is on display. Um, now I'd like to move over to introduce Frank Close. So Frank is Emeritus Professor of Theoretical Physics at the University of Oxford. He had a distinguished research career in theoretical particle physics. He had particular interest in the quark structure of matter. He's also very well known as a science communicator. He gave the 1993 Royal Institution Christmas Lectures under the title of The Cosmic Onion. And since that time, he's written a series of successful popular books on physics. In 1996, he received the Kelvin Medal from the Institute of Physics, which is awarded for an outstanding contribution to public engagement within physics. So Professor Close's title today is The Infinity Puzzle from the Higgs boson to the, L to the LHC. And so please will you join me in welcoming Professor Close as the seventh Andrew Chamberlain Memorial Lecturer. Thanks very much. Well, this year I imagine there's only one topic that one could possibly talk about, and that is, of course, the Higgs boson whatever it might be, and whoever it might be named after, and that's really the theme of the talk, to try to tell you about the story of how, for the last 50 years, we have unwittingly been moving towards a great climax, and I'm trying to keep talking while people finally come in. This is not made up. Uh, Time magazine every year have a person of the year, and among the candidates for 2012, believe it or not, was the Higgs boson which didn't win, um, but they did on the web 
give a profile of all of the shortlisted candidates. And here is the profile that Time magazine gave of the Higgs boson. I have removed everything that was wrong. But I shall now reveal what is behind those things. So take a moment to thank this little particle for all the work it does. During the course of this talk, we will understand why these wrong things are wrong. But it's going to be. Without it, you'd just be inchoate energy without so much as a bit of mass, whatever those words mean. Uh, it's not true. The media keep telling us that the Higgs boson is responsible for mass. It isn't. We'll learn what it is responsible for. What's more, the same would be true for the entire universe. Well. I know that physics has done a lot, but we only understand at most 4% of everything. 96% of dark energy and dark matter, we haven't got a clue what it is. It was in the 1960s that Scottish physicist, Peter Higgs comes from Newcastle, <laughs> first posited the existence of a particle that causes energy to make the jump to matter. It was not until last summer that a team of researchers at Europe's Large Hadron Collider Rolf Hoyer, Joseph Incandela, and Fabiola Giannotti, not to mention 6,000 others, <laughs> Joseph and Fabiola happened to be, at that time, the leaders of the two big collaborations. Rolf Hoyer, the Director General of CERN, is one of the few particle physicists who is not a member of one of the two big collaborations. At last sealed the deal, and in so doing, finally fully confirmed Einstein's general theory of relativity. <laughs> News to me. OK, so <laughs> um, before the great discovery of last year, I was at a literary festival with Peter Higgs. And my task was to interview Peter uh, in front of the audience. And I found myself introducing him the following way. I said, in 1964, you were scribbling these equations uh, on a sheet of paper. And after that, today, this is what had happened. You scribble these equations, and now we've got a 27-kilometer ring of magnets deep under the ground, smashing protons head-on into each other at nearly the speed of light to recreate the conditions of the early universe. The detectors that see what happens are the size of battleships. The pictures that they make are absolutely wonderful. Can I give the only commercial in this talk at this moment? This is one of the wonderful pictures. For the last two years, I and the people at the Science Photo Library have been creating the first particle physics app, which came out yesterday. And if you get it in the next 24 hours, it's still cheap. Go to theparticles.co.uk, and you'll find it all. Anyway, beautiful pictures like this, which you could use as artwork, but they are actually very profound. Here, these are not the scientists involved. This is one of the collaborations meetings, and these are the people who happen to turn up for that meeting. So this is what is the result of just writing those equations on a piece of paper. The whole thing has probably now today come to about 10 billion euros in total. All as a result of that, I said, Peter, if tomorrow you found a mistake in your equations, would you tell anybody? <laughs> and then I showed this photograph, which you might think is telling a certain message. The point of showing this here gives me great pleasure because Rutherford did not discover the atomic nucleus in Cambridge. <laughs> it was in Manchester, contrary to what many people think. Um, this photograph of Geiger and Rutherford and the nuclear atom just 100 years ago, one might get the impression the message here is that two, and two or three guys doing an experiment on a bench top were able to discover the atomic nucleus in the atom. Today, you have 6,000 people doing these wonderful experiments to discover what the universe was like at the very start. That is one message you could take. That's not the one that I was looking for. 
I find it remarkable to realize that the ideas that have at last come to fruition were written down in 1964, 49 years ago. If you imagine yourself being now in 1964 and went back another 49 years, you would be back at the time when the nuclear atom was being discovered. And that was a real shock to me, to realize that, if you like, it's only 100 years since we knew what the atom was at all. And it's taken half that time span for the ideas on, as we shall see, why the structure of the atom is as it is, because that's what this Higgs business is all about, to the final proof. And I would say, as the lawyers say, beyond reasonable doubt, we now have the proof of all of this in what has become known as the Higgs boson. Let the youngsters get in. Okay. So I thought I would just start for the audience to give a sense of um, what Rutherford and co. did, what we know about how matter is made, and then tell you the story of what really these new developments all are. So you're seeing me because light is shining on me and it comes into your eyes. In the jargon of the trade, there is a beam, there's a target, and a detector. Now, the way that uh, Rutherford got the credit for Geiger and Marsden discovering the atomic nucleus is that they were shining a beam of alpha particles from natural radioactivity onto a target, and the things bounced off into a little screen which scintillated. I'm just showing this, not for you to read it, but to show the genius of Rutherford. These are the two sheets of paper on which he first realized that the atomic nucleus is right in the heart of the atom. These are here in the Cambridge University Library. I saw them many years ago. I was expecting to be shown some sort of leather-bound notebook with Lord Rutherford of Nelson OMFRS on the front of it in gold leaf. And I'm surprised when I was given these two sheets of paper written on in pencil. And I sort of had this momentary thought I could erase a few things and change them. But <laughs> the intention is just to realize that is all it took. And the genius of Rutherford was, there's only one equation on there. You can't read it, which is just as well. It just says half mv squared equals something on the right. Half mv squared is the mathematical way of describing kinetic energy, the energy of motion. What Rutherford realized was that, imagine an alpha particle shooting in towards the atomic nucleus. The alpha particle is positively charged, the nucleus is positively charged, and light charges repel. So the nearer it gets, the more repulsion it's feeling, until it momentarily comes to a stop and then is rejected back from where it came. And so Rutherford said, look, energy is conserved. When that alpha particle was a long way away, its energy was just half mv squared. At the moment it stops, its energy is totally the electrostatic energy of repulsion of two charges divided by the distance. And that's what the right-hand side of the equation is. And he just equated the two and worked out the distance. And on the next page there, he's doing his mathematics. That is, for the younger members, long division. <laughs> and here you see the excitement. That number showed him that this distance of closest approach, which is a measure of where the positive charge is, is only one ten-thousandth of the size of the whole atom. And that was the moment of discovery. And you can see his excitement. He says, since probably radius of atom is of order 10 to the minus 8 centimetres, that's one hundredth millionth of a centimetre, it is seen that distance of approach to charge centre is very small compared with the radius of atom. Look at that, is very small compared. He's writing so quickly it hardly leaves the horizontal line. You can just see the excitement of that moment. And then he then worked out all the scattering through this angle and that angle that we set in student exams, knowing they can't solve the thing in less than half an hour, and we give them 20 minutes. 
He just did it by thinking about the rare occasions they come back. That's what it took. That's genius literally as well as metaphorically getting to the heart of the problem. Move the clock forward 60 years, scale the whole thing up, have now a beam of electrons accelerated to nearly the speed of light, three kilometers long, smash them at a target of protons, and they will bounce off the innards of the proton and reveal the quarks inside, and the detector is now not a little scintillation screen, it's huge. And here is a picture at Stanford in California. In the bottom left-hand corner is the three-kilometer-long beam that transports the electrons. They appear, and the right-hand picture behind the concrete blocks there is where the target of hydrogen, which is essentially the protons, is. The electrons are able to burrow deep into the protons, scatter off the quarks, and detected in that huge detector on the right there. And that picture will show you down there me. And you can tell it's me because it's got hair. That was in 1971 or two. Uh, so that was the, uh, the, the nature of how to discover the quarks deep inside the proton. It was the same idea that Rutherford had used years before, but just scaled up much more powerful, much, much deeper. And the picture then we have as a result of that is that the proton is not a fundamental beast. It's made of smaller things called quarks. These quarks are gripped together, if you like, glued to one another by exchanging things called gluons. We're not short of imagination the way we name things in this subject. Um, and there are two varieties of quarks needed to distinguish the proton and the neutron. In units where the proton's charge is positive, let's say one unit, the up quark is carrying positive two-thirds and the down quark is carrying negative one-third. So two ups and a down gives you the positive proton, two downs and an up gives you the neutral neutron. The quarks don't look like that as far as we know. Uh, <laughs> so to make you know, the universe that we are here in the room used to, an up and down quark will do, and whirling around in the outer reaches of the atom is the negatively charged electron. So here's a not-to-scale image, if you like, of the hydrogen atom. And I show this because it shows something very profound, which we, A, do not know the reason for, and B, there is no clue that I can see in any of this Higgs stuff that will answer it, and it is this. The electron has nothing whatsoever to do with quarks. The electron is an electron. Quarks are things that make the proton and neutron in the middle here. Isn't it an amazing fact that we are, I mean, we've got lots of negative electricity buried on the electrons in the atoms in our bodies, and yet our hair isn't standing on end because there's any spare electricity left over. The positive charge inside each and every atom precisely balances the negative charge that the electrons have. Yet that positive charge is carried by quarks. And these quarks have these funny combinations of two-thirds and minus a third. And they grip together in threes, not fives or sevens or some other weird thing. The, the conspiracy of three quarks, each carrying one-third fractions of electrical charge, miraculously balances the negative charge of the electron so that matter overall is neutral. That is a clue that there must be something that links electrons and quarks that we don't yet know. And that's just a, if any of the younger people here have a good answer to this, let me know offline and we'll talk about it separately and so forth. So this then is the world of the quarks. The left-hand column, sorry, the world of the particles. The left-hand vertical, the up and the down quark are the things that we're making protons and neutrons. The E for the electron is the thing whirling around the outside of our atoms. The little symbol at the bottom, the Greek nu, is a neutrino. That's the one remaining thing we need to know when one element turns into another, courtesy of beta radioactivity, an electron and a neutrino appear. 
And so that left-hand column is sufficient to make everything that we're aware of in this room and pretty much everything that goes around uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. For a reason, again, which we do not understand, nature seems to have been dissatisfied with doing it once and has done it three times over. For example, the little e, the electron, there is an identical particle in all respects except one called the muon. It has the same electric charge as an electron, but it's about 200 times heavier. That's why I've put a bigger circle for it, to give the idea of it being more massive. And it happens a third time. There's a particle called a tau, which is two or 4,000 times more massive than the electron, but otherwise is identical to it. The same in the world of the quarks. The, the negative one-third charge down quark has two heavier versions, strange and bottom. The positive two-thirds up quark has two heavier versions, the charm and the top. And I only now I'm prepared to show the scale of the top mass. So what we have here is that if we ignored mass for a moment, we would have what we call a symmetry. We'd have three identical generations in the world. But the mass somehow spoils that and hides it. So this is the first clue that mass, whatever it is, is something that gets in the way of re revealing some deeper symmetry, sort of hides it. Now, that's the way that mass hides the symmetry of the particles that make matter. The other part of the story is, of course, the forces that hold them together. And as you may guess, the same story is going to happen there. So the three forces, apart from gravity, of which I shall say nothing, um, are the electromagnetic force, which you're sort of seeing me courtesy of, the strong force that grips those quarks inside the protons and neutrons of the nucleus, and the weak force, which is responsible for radioactivity, in certain forms of radioactivity. And each of these forces is carried by an agent. In the case of the electromagnetic force, it's the photon, the quantum bundle of light, which has no mass, travels at the speed of light. In the case of the force that grips the quarks together, it's the gluon that plays the role of the photon, and the gluon also has no mass. In the case of the weak force, it is things called the W for weak, and Z for zero, I suppose, uh, the W and Z bosons that play the role. And I'm not going to go into mathematics, but just for those who are here, it turns out if you write down the equations that describe quantum electrodynamics, and then instead of using a number, I mean like uh, whether it's plus this amount of coulombs or minus this amount of coulombs, but it's just a number of coulombs. If you replace that number by what the mathematicians call a matrix, a three-by-three three matrix, those equations are the ones that describe the force that grips the quarks. If you described it with a two-by-two two matrix, miraculously, those are the equations that describe the force of radioactivity. So here is, again, a clue that deep down, nature is using something over and over again. There's a basic rule at work, whether it's one, two, or three, describes these three different forces. Except that whereas the photon and the gluons are massless, the W and the Z are very massive. In fact, the reason why that force is called weak, we now know, is because its agents are so massive. It's very hard for them, under sort of low temperature conditions like this, to do anything. And so their effects are apparently feeble. We now know if you go to very, very high energies, where it's easy to make those things, suddenly that force begins to look just like the electromagnetic force. But it's the mass, the big mass that the W boson has, that has hidden that underlying symmetry from us. So both of the particles 
and the forces, it's mass that is hiding the reality. So that's the game. It's an idea which has become known as hidden symmetry. So to go into this, I just thought there's one thing that I always have a problem when one's giving a, a talk, one never really knows the audience have got a whole different range of experiences and different backgrounds and so forth. Um, what is the single thing that I would want a person to take away from the talk if nothing else came through? And I asked myself, what would the universe be like if there wasn't any of this Higgs stuff? And the message that I would want you to take away is there would still be mass. The mass that makes you and me 99.5 or more percent of it is actually locked up inside the atomic nuclei in our atoms. And that mass is due to those quarks being trapped. It's the, the energy of motion of the quarks trapped inside those little things that gives the mass that we're aware of. What this Higgs business does is gives the mass to the electron or the, the little quark itself. But if that was not there at all, we would still have our mass because of it all trapped in the nucleus. So that's the message to take away. This Higgs business has very little to do with mass, and this one's very careful. What it has to do is everything to do with structure. Why there are atoms with a nucleus in the middle providing the means to make chemistry and biology and everything. That is the message I want to come out with, and that's what I really want to develop. So why is there structure? I mean, in the Big Bang, very, very hot, stuff was just created, thrown out all over the place, the universe cooled. Why did it cool into structures that eventually can make DNA and, and, and atoms and so forth? Well, I will not explain why and how, but I'll just give you the, the punchline. The fact, I mean, why does the hydrogen atom have the size that it does? In part, it's because the electromagnetic force holding it together has a certain strength. But what gives it the scale of size? There has to be something in the jargon with a dimension to do it. And the something is the electron. It's the mass of the electron that tells you how big the hydrogen atom is. If the electron was heavier, hydrogen would be smaller. If the electron were lighter, hydrogen would be bigger. If the electron mass was nothing at all, hydrogen would be infinitely big, which is another way of saying it wouldn't exist. So the electron mass, which arises, we believe, courtesy to this mechanism is critical for giving atoms their size. It is less direct, um, but I'll just make the statement, and if you want to know why, you can come to the Cavendish Colloquium in a month. But the fact that the quarks have a little bit of mass is ultimately what causes the atomic nucleus to be very compact. If the quarks had no mass, the atomic nuclear forces would be long-range and matter would be completely diffuse. So bottom line, the masses of the quarks make compact nuclei. The mass of the electron makes the atoms like this. You've got the atomic structure from which chemistry, biology, and things can develop. And that's the punchline I would want you to take away if you take away nothing else. But it's important for my conclusion. So how did this all begin in 64? It was because people were interested in the forces, in particular the electromagnetic and the weak force. And let me tell you why and what. Here's a nice picture of Venus transiting the sun, which is there for no obvious reason, except that it hit me when I saw this picture last year. Venus is about the same size as the Earth. So you can imagine that's the Earth going across the front of the sun, and we all know how big the Earth is. And you begin to realize how huge the sun is, especially when you realize that that thing is in the foreground of the sun. Anyway, so that's apropos of nothing at all, but 
There it is. So you are seeing, because the sunlight is radiating electromagnetic radiation across space, that's the electromagnetic force in its radiant form uh, at work, the fact that the sun is burning at all is because hydrogen, the seeds of hydrogen, the protons at the heart, are by a series of processes turning into helium, the next element in the periodic table. And a critical feature in this is the weak force at work. The first stage of the cycle is turning protons by a series of processes into to helium, which involves a proton being converted into a neutron by a form of beta decay. And it is the weak force that is controlling that. If the weak force was much stronger than it is, the sun would burn much faster than it does. The fact that the sun has been burning for five billion years is because the weak force is so feeble. If you were a proton in the sun at the start five billion years ago, today there is still only a 50-50 chance that you would have bumped into another one and set the, the, fuel, uh, the, the solar cycle going. So the fact that we are here is thanks to the fact that the sun only just keeps burning, and it only just keeps burning because the weak force is weak, and that is because the W boson is massive. If the W boson was massless like a photon, the sun would have burned out before long ago. So this is not just arcane stuff that this Higgs business is talking about. It is very directly relevant to our existence. So let me then try to amplify this. The electromagnetic force, all associated with James Clark Maxwell, but here in Cambridge, it was really what happened in the 20th century when Paul Dirac combined Einstein's theory of relativity with the quantum theory to create this wonderful theory known as quantum electrodynamics, which describes the interaction of photons, particles of light, uh, with electric charges, such as the electrons in atoms and matter. And he created this around 1930 or so, and at first sight, it looked wonderful. However, the moment you went beyond the first approximation, you suddenly started getting answers of infinity. Now, if you get an answer of infinity coming out of a calculation, it shows that something's gone wrong. The problem is what, and what do you do about it? So it was clear that there was some problem with this. And by the late 30s, many people began to think that this apparently wonderful theory was useless. And Pauli himself even said that he was going to give up physics and start writing novels, which is probably just as thankful that he didn't, because the solution to this uh, dilemma, the infinity puzzle, as I call it, uh, was finally found in 1947 at the Shelter Island Conference, a process called, quote, renormalization. Whatever that is, if you want to know, you can go and read a book. But the one critical thing I just need to say is they discovered a trick whereby you could, this answer that appeared to be infinity, you were able to sort of remove that and reveal the real numbers lurking behind it. And although nobody has been, well, Dirac himself was never really totally happy with this procedure, it clearly works because you can reveal numbers which agree with experiments to accuracies in some cases of one part in a billion which is analogous to saying you could measure the width of the Atlantic Ocean to the accuracy of the width of a human hair. So that really shows that once you got rid of that infinity, it works. And the procedure is you know, part of standard fare. The one critical feature that enabled that trick to be pulled was that the photon, the carrier of the electromagnetic force, has no mass. 
That was one of the critical things that enabled the infinity to disappear and the real wonders appear, which then highlights the real problem because if you want to try to do the same thing for the weak force of radioactivity, where the analogous carrier, the W boson, has a lot of mass, you are stuck with infinity. And that was where things were until about 1970. That was the intractable infinity puzzle, which was finally cracked by these two gentlemen, Howard Toft at the left, who did it in his PhD thesis, and his supervisor, Tini Veltman, on the right. And they finally showed how to remove the infinity, even in the presence of mass. And from that, we have the modern theory, which is called quantum flavor dynamics, which is the theory that describes both the electromagnetic and the weak forces to very high precisions, and for the last 50 years has described wonderfully all of the phenomena in those areas that uh, we are able to measure. So what they achieved was indeed wonderful, and the two of them shared the Nobel Prize for this, I think, in 1999, which now sets the scene for the real story. So what's this all got to do with Higgs and all this other stuff? Atoft and Veltman achieved what they achieved because they used two things. First of all, they found that you could solve the infinity puzzle, even in the presence of mass, if you started off by pretending there wasn't any mass, and then the mass appeared, if you like, from the sleeves of the magician's cloak, using a trick which is due to Peter Higgs up there, and five other people, within the space of a few weeks, these six people in three independent collaborations discovered the trick of how to make mass appear spontaneously in equations, uh, leaving a beautiful, pristine theory. And th these are known in the trade as the Gang of Six. So their work has already been used to generate uh, part of one Nobel Prize. The other thing that Toft and Veltman needed was work of these four gentlemen, which these four people had discovered the mathematical way of marrying the electromagnetic force and the weak force in a mathematical sense, as long as you just shut your eyes to the mass problem. So they found how to do it. And they are Stephen Weinberg and Shelley Glashow at the top left, John Ward and Abdus Salam at the bottom right. And one of the rules you need to know about Nobel Prizes is that at most three people can share a prize. And those of you with pocket calculators will realize that four is greater than three. And those are the three that share the Nobel Prize for that. Glashow, Salam, and Weinberg. Why it was those three we will possibly see as we go along. And understanding why it was those three is important to understanding where I think the credit should finally go in all of this Higgs business, because six is certainly greater than three. Um, and the answer is that the, well, the two gentlemen on the right, Salam and Weinberg, in their work, they made use of the trick of the Gang of Six. So the first thing to set the scene is the work of the Gang of Six has already led to two independent Nobel Prizes, a Toft and Veltman for the full theory of the quantum flavor dynamics, and the seed to the Weinberg-Salam part of the Glashow-Salam-Weinberg uh, Nobel Prize. So that, I think, shows there is some significance in what is going on here. So let's try to understand it. Well, <laughs> yes, there is another comment here. The Economist wrote this rather tantalizing uh, review of the book in which they said the Nobel Committee would be well advised to read Mr. Close's book before making their decision, which is rather nice. Uh, not least because um, just a couple of evenings ago uh, there was a celebration of the 80th birthday of one of the Gang of Six, that's Tom Kibble, who we will meet later. And Stephen Weinberg gave a big talk 
summarising the sort of history uh, of this whole venture. And afterwards, walking from the talk to uh, a dinner afterwards, I was talking to the chairman, uh, I was walking with the chairman of the physics committee of uh, the, the Nobel uh, committees. And he asked me, um, what did I think of the history as Weinberg had presented it? And I said, well, and then I said some things which we shall see later in this talk. And he cut in and he says, I have read your book very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows what happens next? OK, so what is the story? I did not in this book make any recommendation. Um, and, uh, but I will make clear as we go along the circumstance. So the three strands, first of all, we need to understand how did four become three? What did the gang of six actually do? And then, how does six become three, and why those three? And I just need to clarify something at this point. I'm not saying that my judgment is that these three people should share the Nobel Prize for this or for anything. I'm addressing another question which has been thrown out in the media so often, and I think it's a non-question. The media sort of say, oh, because there are six people involved here, it is therefore impossible to select three people out of them. It is not, in my opinion. If you were given the challenge of which three of those six are the three and why, that, I think, is a question that will answer, as I will argue here. Whether those three should be part of or the totality of any prize is a completely separate issue. So that is the, 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 the format. That's the rules of the game for today. So how did four become three? Well, the way you approach science is to simplify problems. It's really how did two become one, and we will see that. So the story is really this. In 1956, Julian Schwinger, one of the people who had solved the infinity puzzle in 47 for the uh, quantum electrodynamics, was intrigued with the possibility that one could write down a theory to describe the weak force by analogy with the quantum electrodynamics. The only price being you had to pretend that it was a thing called the W boson, which had got a lot of mass. And he was accused of just playing numerology uh, just like Eddington uh, was accused of playing numerology, and I felt being in Cambridge, I had to throw that one in as we went along. Um, and so he just sort of worried about... The reason he was worried, because he already knew that just throwing in a mass would eventually lead you to a problem of infinity. So that's where Schwinger left it. Now, as you know when you've been around for a while, if you have an intractable problem, you give it to a student. And in 1961, a student called Shelley Glashow uh, came on board... And Glashow's memory of what happened next is this. Schwinger told me to think about unifying weak and electromagnetic interactions. So I did. For two years, I thought about it. End of story. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, and in a parallel universe, John Ward suggested in a letter to Abdus Salam that perhaps it was possible to create a theory uh, unifying the weak and electromagnetic interactions. And they set to work. And in 1964, they produced a paper which, I mean, for those who know the jargon, it's there in front of you, that paper had all the features that we now know nature has. In the mathematical language, it's SU2 cross U1. It predicted a Z boson, which we now know experimentally exists, and it had everything. So in 64, Salam and Ward had cracked how to marry these two forces. I'll just show this because... From uh, Salam's widow, I got the manuscripts that uh, she had preserved of the, the draft of this. I, I just show this for a couple of reasons. All the crossings out are interesting because you know, historians can go and look at the crossings out and you get a sense of how the ideas developed. 
The things that didn't appear in the final version, the things that are thrown away can teach you a lot about the thought processes. And I sort of wonder, you know, today, when everything's done on a computer disk and you throw it, you know, what historians of the future will be able to reconstruct about the thought processes? But it's just sort of interesting to see that. For example, here is the front page of the actual published version. And you notice in the, ab in the manuscript on the left, there is an abstract. They obviously were originally planning to send this to a, a much uh, more uh, formalized journal that is there for the record, rather than a letters journal without an abstract where it finally appeared. But anyway, that's just to show a bit of history that Salaman Ward, by 1964, had cracked it. The problem is that Glashow had already done it in 1961. They were not aware of the fact. And so that is why Glashow is one of the three that uh, sh shares the prize. But uh, what is intriguing, and I said this at the dinner at Imperial the other evening, something I really do not understand. As we will see, Salaman Ward in 1964, working at Imperial College, have found the key how to marry the weak and electromagnetic interaction. But they don't know how to get rid of this infinity puzzle for the mass stuff. Meanwhile... At Imperial College, three of the gang of six, in particular Jerry Goralnik, who was a young postdoc, had cracked the mass problem, but didn't know anything at all about where to apply it. And I use this as an example of how to miss a Nobel Prize. That um, Jerry Goralnik, who was then a young postdoc, went to lunch with John Ward, who was at that stage a very senior and well-known uh, international physicist. And you can sort of imagine the nervousness of the occasion if you're in, in Jerry's situation. So he's, you, know, you try to get a conversation going. And Goralnik's memory is, you know, so I started telling John Ward about what I was doing, that I found this way of making mass appear of equations. Now, Ward was quite a sort of suspicious person, or probably almost paranoid in a way. And he said, just a second, stop. Have you published this? And Goralnik said, no. Have you even talked about it in public? And Goralnik said, no. And so Ward said, never tell people about your unpublished thoughts. They will steal them and go away and publish them themselves. So Goralnik shut up. And in his memoirs, and he agreed the other evening, he said that uh, I didn't feel in the circumstances I could now ask Ward what he was working on. <laughs> <laughs> so the conversation went elsewhere. But had it not been stopped at that moment, one of them had got the lock, the other one had got the key the whole thing could have been cracked there and then, how to bring mass into the SU2 cross U1 model and create the fully-fledged theory. And that is not what happened. Three years elapsed before that critical step was taken in a profound way, as we will see. So how did four become three? Well, we've identified Glashow. He was the first person to recognize the critical SU2 cross U1 mathematical way of doing this, but he didn't know what to do about the, math, the mass. We will see that Salam and Weinberg got their share of this prize because they incorporated into Glashow's work, if you like, the trick of the Gang of Six. So that really brings us to what is it the Gang of Six did. And uh, to take this next bit really depends how much physics you know or not. I'm going to do what I call pedagogy for scientists or radio hams or gardeners with greenhouses. Uh, radio hams is probably nearer to it. Um, the one thing that we need to know is electromagnetic waves, such as light. There's electric fields and magnetic fields, and the, say, one instance is an electric field like this, and as it dies away, the magnetic field grows perpendicular to it, and as this dies away, likewise. So it's an electromagnetic oscillation. 
The only difference between visible light and gamma rays or radio waves is the speed of that oscillation. If it's slow oscillation, low frequency, you've got radio waves. Middle, you've got optical. And very, very fast, you've got X-rays. So the frequency distinguishes where in the spectrum you are. But in all cases, they're doing it like this, and the wave is propagating that away. So the electric and magnetic fields are wobbling transverse to the direction of motion. There is no longitudinal compression wave. You're seeing a continuous light beam. It's not one that's pulsing all the time. So the critical thing is that electromagnetic waves only act in this transverse direction. And uh, it, by a profound set of arguments, which don't need to concern us, that is linked to the fact that the photon has got no mass. But anyway. So in 1962, a solid-state physicist called Phil Anderson then started thinking about what happens when an electromagnetic wave hits a plasma. Now, what's a plasma? A plasma is when, instead of the electrons and protons being linked in atoms, usually in a hot condition, they're just flowing independently. You've got a gas of negatively charged electrons and positively charged protons swimming all around, like in the heart of the sun, for example. Um, there is a plasma above our heads in the ionosphere, uh, I think called the Appleton layer, and those of a certain age, I see there's plenty of us in here uh, of that certain age, may remember in the good old days when you had the old-fashioned analogue radios and crystal sets and things, if the atmospheric conditions were right, you could occasionally listen to radio stations from America because their radio waves were going up into the stratosphere, bouncing off the, atom, uh, off the plasma and back down into our radio sets here in the UK. So that is a phenomenon it's a phenomenon that low-frequency electromagnetic radiation bounces off a plasma. It doesn't get in. High-frequency radiation can go through the plasma. You can still see the stars. The stars are shining in high-frequency radiation compared to the low-frequency radio waves which get rejected. So that's a, a phenomenon that you can just accept. Low-frequency doesn't get in. High-frequency does. If you've done second-year electromagnetism at uni, you know why, but you don't need to know why. Just accept that's the reality. So what Anderson was thinking was, what would it be like if I had spent my whole existence living inside a plasma? What would happen when a good old electromagnetic wave arrived at that plasma? If the wave was low frequency, it wouldn't get in. If it's high frequency, it does get in. So a creature living inside a plasma would only ever be aware of high-frequency electromagnetic radiation. Now, high-frequency, through quantum theory, correlates with high energy, and E equals mc squared links you to mass. Basically, inside a plasma, there would be a low-frequency cutoff. You would never see radiation lower than that in frequency which means that its quanta, the, the photons, would never have energy lower than a certain amount. The only way something can have a minimum energy is if it's got a mass. That's when it's got mc squared's worth of energy. So inside the plasma, the quanta of the electromagnetic radiation would appear to be carried by particles with mass. Now, that's the first part of the two critical features. 
because I said that electromagnetic radiation oscillates transverse the direction of motion. There's no longitudinal compression wave. That is a property of a massless photon, which we're all used to. If, however, the photon had a mass, there would also have to be the longitudinal compression wave as well. And that is the miracle final ingredient, because inside the plasma, the waves that are high enough frequency to get in set the plasma itself oscillating in the longitudinal direction. So Anderson realized that if you had spent your whole life living inside a plasma, your experience of electromagnetic radiation would be that it is carried by photons with mass. Now you just have to take the leap and suggest, well, perhaps we do live inside a, a plasma, that the whole universe is filled with something. You might call it the Higgs field, if you like, to coin a phrase. Um, but there's one further feature to make this analogy complete. In a real plasma, it is possible to, hit, if you just hit it right, that all the negative charges sort of go one way and the positives the other. You get a coherent phenomenon, which is called a plasmon. And the analogy is, if you think that the whole of the universe is filled with some sort of plasma, that you will excite it to make what you might call a Higgs-on, which is what the Higgs boson is. So... This physics pedagogy is completely legitimate. I think that all of these stories you hear about people trying to say, oh, to describe the Higgs boson, imagine a field of party workers and Mrs. Thatcher walks through and they gather around her and so on and so forth. Um, it's very nice as an analogy. But actually, Phil Anderson in 1962, in a physical review paper, had already posed this sort of thought question and gone through legitimate physics to set up a situation really... If we lived inside a plasma, it would all appear as if photons had a mass. That's 1962. So why is it then that Brout, Anglais, Higgs and the others, in 1964, we are hearing so much about? Well, the problem, you see, is this. What Anderson was doing was completely fine. He was thinking about a plasma sort of sitting here, and that, in the jargon, is a well-defined frame of reference. If you want to fill the whole universe with a plasma like this, you're reinventing the ether. And that is, as they say, a problem. And what you have to do is to make a relativistic analogue of that. You've got to fill the universe with an ether and satisfy relativity at the same time. And that, in a jargon, is not trivial. And basically, that is what the Gang of Six did two years later. They were able to find a way of filling the universe with a, a relativistic version of the ether, which, well, how they did it, I'm not going to tell you. Um, but I will just show you an example to show that the trick that they used is actually much more familiar. Um, they found a way of hiding the natural symmetry, the things that would lead you to think that the photons had no mass. And this phenomenon of hiding symmetry, the idea that your fundamental law has a certain behavior and yet the things that you see mask it, is very common. And gravity is a beautiful example of this. That the, the law of gravity is that massive particles interact and they attract each other. The force is proportional to the inverse square of the distance apart. But it doesn't matter which direction, whether they're oriented this way, that way, or everything. It's all the same. So gravity is the same in all three dimensions. In the jargon, it's three-dimensionally symmetric. Therefore, if gravity alone is at work, you'd expect it to make things collapse into spheres. 
And indeed, you know, stars like the Sun are, to a very good approximation, spherical because of that underlying three-dimensional symmetry. And here is a picture of a whole galaxy of stars, which is pretty well three-dimensionally symmetric. So this is an example of something showing you the fundamental symmetry at work. However, you adorn your walls with beautiful images of spiral galaxies, and that certainly isn't spherically symmetric. In fact, if the only thing you knew about galaxies was that, your student would legitimately have to be given full marks for deducing, oh, that means that the law of gravity only operates in a plane. Yet we know that it really operates in 3D. So this is an example of where the underlying laws are three-dimensionally the same, but the phenomena that you see at large only respect two-dimensional symmetry. Now, I've cheated you because that's not the only galaxy in the universe. <laughs> and uh, there's lots of them. And if you collected the whole lot, then you would find that all three dimensions are used up. I mean, some this way, some that way. All orientations are used up over the universe at large. But on a case-by-case -case basis, the symmetry is hidden. And this sort of phenomenon is very familiar. I mean, like water, um, if I look at the, uh, above this glass of water, it looks the same however I rotate it to any angle. It's, it's rotationally symmetric to any angle. But we know that if I freeze it, and you get the snowflake, which has this beautiful sort of six-fold symmetry. And that's an example. If all you knew were snowflakes, you'd be unaware that the underlying rules were completely rotationally symmetric. But if you go and look at a frosty window pane, which might be tomorrow morning your first chance to do it, you will see that the individual flakes, this one's pointing this way, this one's pointing that way, the window pane as a whole, all possibilities are there overall, but on a case-by-case -case basis, it's hidden. And the, the common feature to these things is this. It was discovered by a philosopher uh, many centuries ago called Buridan's Ass. The idea you can set up a perfectly symmetric situation, namely a perfectly symmetric ass, exactly midway between two identical bunches of carrots. And if symmetry was the whole story, therefore the ass must starve to death because it can't choose one or the other. And that's the sort of problem that philosophers like to worry about. Um, in reality, you know that something must happen. Uh, that it'll go this way. Maybe a slight puff of wind makes it choose the left rather than the right. Um, but of course, what you're doing to solve this paradox is you're introducing through the back door a little bit of asymmetry, but one which has a big consequence. Um, and to get a little bit nearer to this in a more familiar situation is having a sort of hemisphere here with a ball on top of it and you know, that's rotationally symmetric all the way around and yet you know what will happen is that the ball will roll down into the bottom and end up at some random spot. I mean that's the idea of roulette wheels. You can't predict where the individual ball is going to end up except you can guarantee it'll be in the house's double zero rather than yours. But the thing is that you started off with something which is rotationally symmetric and you ended up with a ball in that direction or over there or something like that. But if you do the trial thousands of times, the ball will end up anywhere around the bottom. So this is a, a, a nice example. And then you're going to say to me, ah, I now understand it because you're cheating. The reason, of course, you know, it is perfectly symmetric. I could imagine the ball sitting there at the top forever. And the reason it rolls down is because you weren't careful enough. I'll say, well, hold a second. Let's imagine a perfectly spherical uh, ball underneath here made of spherical atoms and a spherical ball here made of spherical atoms and we can imagine lining them up bang on top of each other except we can't because 
At room temperature, things are jiggling around. So therefore, again, you know, by chance, they will fall someplace. And then you say, OK, forget room temperature. Let's do it at absolute zero. Now what's the problem? And now we come to something very profound, which I do not understand, and it is this. We know from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle that you cannot set it up. You cannot both know precisely where those two atoms are to line them up at the same time be totally sure that they're not moving this way or that way. You cannot both pin a thing down with, without knowing with some uncertainty where it's going. The underlying fact that the universe reads quantum mechanics, or the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, means that even in principle, you cannot set up a ball on top of another ball and have it not roll off somewhere. So the common feature to all of these examples that I've shown you, the spherical galaxies and the ball rolling down, and ultimately the, the way that these gang of six did the mathematical trick, is that you start off with a situation where the underlying law is symmetric, but highly unstable. And the slightest bit of instability will give you a stable solution which has hidden the original underlying symmetry. And that is how it turns out that the underlying symmetry of the mathematics is there for all the particles and the forces if there wasn't any mass, but that, in a mathematical sense, is highly unstable in the presence of this all-encompassing field of stuff that we are in called the Higgs field. It's the wrong name because the gang of six talked about this, not just Higgs. So this is now getting me towards my three out of six in the last few minutes. Broughton Anglais were the first to publish this trick in relativistic field theory early in 1964. Peter Higgs uh, was beaten by about three or four weeks to that. However, Peter Higgs did something which none of the others did. He realized that there is a consequence of this idea that there must necessarily be a massive particle which is unstable, whose decays will be able to tell you whether this trick is really used by nature or whether it's just a mathematical game that theorists are playing. So moral number two, it's easier to be Shakespeare or Beethoven than a theoretical physicist. You can change a few words in Shakespeare or a few notes in Beethoven, you've still got a wonderful construct. Change one symbol in the mathematics of the relativistic mass mechanism, and it doesn't work. And it's experiment that determines whether your symphony is nature's or not. And that's why experiment is important, in my opinion, why the Higgs boson, correctly named because he's the only person who drew attention to this feature, is a critical thing that is enabling us today to know beyond reasonable doubt that this whole idea is correct. The history of the thing, to show you how tight it was, um, Broughton Anglais published their paper. I asked all of these why they didn't mention the boson that Higgs has now been named for. And Broughton Anglais said, well, they didn't mention it because they thought it was obvious. <laughs> and Peter Higgs said, it was obvious, <laughs> but he mentioned it. And more particular, two years later, he wrote down the critical equation in the paper which showed that the decay of this boson had certain properties that was very special and could be used to test the whole idea. And it's that, really, which we have now done. Uh, the, the boson was implicit in the work of the, the final trio, but it didn't have any mass, and it's not relevant to the massive boson that we have discovered. So that is why... Now, sadly, Brout died uh, last year, and that means that Anglaire is the sole survivor of the people who first published the relativistic 
Maastricht. Peter Higgs I've identified because of the boson, which, in my opinion, is correctly named for him because he's the only person who mentioned it and its, its significance. And now we'll just come to why Tom Kibble, of the other three, is the one that I shall highlight. And that is because everything I've told you up to this point is sort of showing you how you can do it in principle, how you can make mass appear into equations. It was three years later that Tom Kibble added something to these basic ideas and really made contact with reality. He showed how you could set it up by incorporating the mathematics of group theory into this, such that the W and Z, as we now call them, will be massive, and the photon can stay massless. So in a sense, it took six people to discover the trick of how to make the W and Z have a mass. Tom was the only one who discovered the trick how to keep photons massless. And as Steve Weinberg said a couple of nights ago in his talk, and I think it really crystallized it for me, that was the moment it became clear that these ideas could be applied to a theory marrying the weak force and the electromagnetic force. So it was Kibble's point in 67 that I think really began to crystallize it. And the other thing that's very profound is that by showing how you could keep the photon massless in the presence of this all-encompassing field, you have the solution to the paradox that the Michelson-Morley experiment, which did away with the ether, was because the probe they were using, the photon, is completely impervious to the stuff. The ultimate irony. So it was Kibble that really pinned down that final piece, and that's why I choose him as the third of that three. And in the last two minutes, we will see even more so. How four became three is also explained by Kibble, and it's this. In 67, Weinberg wrote his seminal paper, referenced 8,000 times, that got him his share of the prize. Um, here's the manuscript of his paper, which I'll just show you for interest, except to highlight one thing. In the manuscript version that he'd taken to this conference, he was already aware of Peter Higgs's paper, but he wasn't aware of the work of the other trio, that's Hagen et al., or of Broughton Anglaire. At this conference, uh, Anglaire, uh, a young postdoc, was present, and he asked some questions of Weinberg, and from the manuscript you can see, it is at that moment that Weinberg realised that Broughton Anglaire had also been working on this, and Hagen et al. had also been working on this with Kibble. And so the little arrow at the side is not, I haven't put that there, that has been put there by Weinberg to remind himself when he gets back home to include the references to these other two that he's just become aware of, and in the published version, you then see it. It's because he has learned about their work later than his knowledge of Higgs that Higgs is there first in the published reference, even though chronologically he should have been second. That is part of the reason why Higgs's name has become sort of very well-known. It got even worse four years later. Here is the chronological order and the relevant papers. Phys Rev Letters, Volume 13, for Broughton Anglaire. Physics Letters, Volume 12, for Higgs. Just notice that, because in 1971, Weinberg has the chronology this way, and the journal has been transmogrified to Phys Rev Letters, which looks like it comes right. Phys Rev Letters 12 in front of Phys Rev Letters 13. I'm not making it up because that is the actual thing. And those of us who've published in Fisrev Letters know what a pain the editors are in saying, well, you've got a full stop where it should be a comma and so forth. On this occasion, they didn't even check the journal reference. This paper of Weinberg's has been referenced itself several thousand times, and it is fascinating. If you go and look through the references to this paper and see how many of them have given the incorrect reference to this, it's like a Darwinian notation going through the literature for the last 40 years. And it also has the common message. It shows we tend to reference other people's references rather than reading the original papers. But the critical point of this is, look at reference four. See particularly Tom Kibble, 
1967. Tom Kibble's insight that you could keep the photon massless while letting these other things have mass was the thing that made Weinberg realize this is the key feature which led him to make the full Weinberg part of the Weinberg-Salam model, as it became known. And Abdus Salam was in the same department as Tom Kibble. And although a few years before, Abdus Salam, in 1964, must have just been totally blind to what was going on. As I said, that lunch that Ward had with Goralnik and nobody was talking the same language. Three years later, Tom Kibble's tutorial made Salam realize this was the real deal. And I think the key is, and this is slightly for more experts, Tom Kibble had shown how to bring group theory on top of the basic ideas, and Abdus Salam was a man who was a group theorist. And suddenly it resonated for him, and he realized, aha, this is the key feature. And that is ultimately what separated Salam from Ward and gave him his share of the prize. And so we now understand how four became three. Glashauer, because he had the idea first. Salam and Weinberg, because they incorporated Kibble's insight on the mass mechanism to complete the thing. And here's the letter that indeed nominated Salam for the prize sent by his head of department, Paul Matthews. And the critical thing I want to draw attention to, one, two, three, four, five, about six lines down, using the recent work of Kibble done in our department. So I think that is why Kibble uh, outdistances maybe any of the other people in there. I mean, it's a very interesting thing. But I think Kibble's work has been uh, not hugely recognized. And I think that is why I included him as my final of the three out of those six. So there's the answer. That's how four became three. Glashow did it first. Weiberg and Salam added the critical part of the mass mechanism that Kibble had drawn attention to. And so we can end by seeing, again, time's wrong summary and understand why. Well, mass, as we've said, really comes about, mass that makes you and me comes about because the quarks are trapped. The entire universe, what dark matter is, is fascinating, whether the Higgs mechanism wrongly named the mass mechanism, Higgs boson, yes, mass mechanism, yes. Whether that applies to them at all, we don't know. Peter Higgs certainly is not Scottish, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the list of the, the problems. And I think the Einstein's general theory of relativity is the joke of the year. Um, so I think that brings me into the conclusion that that was what Time nominated for their person of the year 2012. Um, my Nobel persons of the year for this year, I nominate Anglair, Higgs, and Kibble for chemistry. Thank you. <laughs>
We are immersed, I think, now, beyond reasonable doubt, in this mysterious field, which is there all the time. In order to excite that field into a particular form, just like the electromagnetic field is there, you can excite photons just by a small amount of energy will create photons because they've got no mass. To do the analogous thing for the Higgs field, you've got to focus in... 125 GeV in the jargon, the amount of energy that would be the amount of energy that's trapped in an atom of somewhere up along with them. So focusing that amount of energy into small enough space to make that field bubble up into the Higgs boson has not been possible until this last few years. So in a quantum mechanical sense, they are there all the time fluctuating in and out of existence, but not in a way that you can make them materially present until you focus that energy in there. So it is the presence of the field which is responsible for having the effect on particles flowing through it and giving them masses. Um, in a quantum sense, the Higgs boson is the excitation of that field, analogous to the way the photon is the excitation of the electromagnetic field. It just takes much more energy to make it bubble out and manifest itself. And then it does it only for the briefest of moments. Any other questions? Yeah. Okay, let's go to you first. Uh, why don't they just give consecutive Nobel Prizes? Uh, why don't they just give Nobel Prizes? It, it is possible they might. Uh, there's no reason why you, you could not. Um, I don't have to make that decision, I'm pleased to say. Uh, I do have a solution, though, which is, I mean, because the real question is, what about the experiments? And also, what about the machine itself? I mean, 20 years ago, I and many others really wondered whether the LHC would ever exist, because the technology to do it was so far beyond what was understood at the time in a whole range of the things, superconductivity and so forth. But it, it worked because of the genius of the engineers. So my solution is that this new prize, the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, which has designs upon being a sort of engineering Nobel Prize, if that would go to some combination of the engineers who designed and made the LHC, that would be great. If the physics prize would somehow go to some representatives of the experimental side, and the chemistry prize go to some theorists, I could get the peace prize for sorting it out. But <laughs> <laughs> Why the rules are as they are, I don't know, and I, I, I'm not a lawyer to know. Do you think in the era of big science, That's an interesting point. I mean, the <coughs> Nobel wrote his will, and the reason why he left maths out, I think we all know, and if you don't know, it doesn't matter to discuss it now, um, but it had something to do with his wife and a mathematician. And uh, <laughs> how it came about that this limit of three worked in, I, I, I don't know. But of course, at that time, science was not like it is today, and you, you've hit the nail on the head. There are some areas of science, I mean, like the Human Genome Project, for example. There are some projects today which cannot happen unless there are huge numbers of people working. And how you accolade those if at most three can be identified. Um, there was someone right there, yeah. The latter is certainly true. Um, the former, you'd have to ask them. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if, if 96% of matter is dark matter, 
the question is, uh, if 96% of matter is dark matter, and if the secret of that could be unraveled, could all of this be put into a, a, a more complete formalism? I think. Um, I mean, th that's the great mystery, in a sense that we know by inference there must be all this stuff which we call made of dark particles. We don't know what they are. There are, I mean, from attempts to model cosmology, I understand that you need these particles to be very massive, and there are no known things in the standard model of that form. Therefore, there must be something new waiting to be discovered. The theorists do have ideas for many years called supersymmetry, which is a, a, a larger a mathematical idea. Um, and within supersymmetry, there do exist particles predicted to exist with properties which coincide with what we think dark particles might have. There has been great hope that these particles might be produced in the experiments at the LHC. That has not yet happened. Um, I am sure that supersymmetric particles do exist. The one thing we don't know is where, whether they are within the reach of the LHC or very far beyond it. And the analogy that I've drawn is saying that look, if all this Higgs business is like finding America and the supersymmetry question is the gold fields of California, we don't yet know whether we've landed on the East Coast or the West Coast, whether it'll be a, a, a short journey or a long journey. So until one knows the answer to that question, it is hard really to proceed. But the answer is yes, mathematically, there are many ideas that suggest really there should be more than this, but quite where it will be and how it will manifest itself, that's part of the game. I mean, just to close, one other thing is, the fact that we are here is because protons are lighter than neutrons, which is because down quarks are heavier than up quarks. There is nothing at all that gives us any clue in the mathematics, let alone the experiments, as to why the down quark is more massive than the up quark, let alone why the mass of the electron is so conveniently in there that radioactivity can happen and transmit the elements. So why the particles have the pattern, why the fundamental particles have the patterns that they have, interesting question, and I hope there will be some quirk in the experiments that will give us a clue where to go with that. Sorry, one question? Okay. So I think then uh, this is a good point to, to stop. Um, so I'd just like to, I hope, hope you'll join me in um, you know, thanking Professor Close for a really excellent delivery of the seventh Andrew Chandon lecture. Thank you.